What's up, Tiaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. Hold on real quick, you guys. We're jumping into an ad. This week, I'm telling you the story of the Hi-Fi Shop murders, and this is episode 17. We are doing this case because it was a request, so I'm excited to share this one with you. If any of our listeners ever have any case requests that you guys would like to hear, please feel free to submit those to Podcast at gmail.com or leave a comment on any of our social media platforms. As always, before we get started, I want to provide a listener warning that this case contains sensitive details. Some listeners might find this disturbing and to please take care while listening. Oh, good. <laughs> Let's go back to April 22nd, 1974 in Ogden, Utah. Isn't that when your mom was born? 73. Oh, close. <laughs> I had to do the math in I my head. I knew she was an older lady. So an I was old just lady. Check- I was just checking. You hear that? <laughs> Ogden is 40 miles north of Salt Lake City, Utah, and it is home to Weber State University and also home to the Ogden Raptors. It sits extremely close to the Wasatch Mountains, and the population of Ogden at the time of this case was around 70,000 people. Oh, wow. Ogden's population today is around 87,000 people. Ogden is also ranked as the three. 399th largest city in the United States. Isn't that crazy? It is a little crazy, actually. From the 1970s to the 1990s, Ogden actually had a significant drop in population, but it has started to rise again as of today. In April of 1974, there was a music and stereo shop located on Washington Boulevard in Ogden called the Hi-Fi Shop, and it was owned by a man named Brent Richardson. This is where our horrible crime is going to take place. Have you ever been to the Hi-Fi Shop? No, since I wasn't born when this happen but um I know where it's at and I heard something really horrible happened at this building but you know like me it has to do I don't, I don't care about any of this stuff but I think now it went to it went from the hi-fi shop to like a random electronic shop mm-hmm. and then isn't it like a car stereo shop now it is so the building itself is actually still there but there is a hi-fi shop just in a different city now it's wow. been moved but the building that this took place at is still there so the same people that owned the original one just moved. I believe so. Oh, okay, cool. Yep. So working at the hi-fi shop on April 22nd was 18-year-old Michelle Ansley and 20-year-old Stanley Walker. I want to tell you that both of these employees were not scheduled to be the ones at the store on the night that this took place. Michelle was covering for another employee and Stanley was filling in for the manager who was out of town. The total randomness of this is just horrible. These little decisions that we all make every day always have consequences that we're totally unaware of. I can almost guarantee that the employees that should have been working that night probably went on to live their lives feeling really guilty. Don't you think that would be horrible? Some kind of like survivor's guilt, I feel oh, like. I was like, I don't know because I don't know what happened yet. So I'll just say sure. <laughs> just say sure. <laughs> we'll jump ahead. Sorry, I forgot that you had no idea what we're talking about. Yes. <laughs> this is raw and unscripted. <laughs> Michelle was recently hired a week before this incident occurred and was planning out her entire life. 
She was young and had big plans. The night before this incident would happen, on April 21st, 1974, Michelle had gone home to tell her mother that she was engaged to be married. Michelle was so excited about it and was looking forward to her future. On April 22nd, while Stanley and Michelle were getting ready to close the store, a car full of African-American males pulled into the parking lot and parked right in front of the store. There were reports that there were six men in total that arrived in the car and that each man did play a role in something that would happen that night, but there is only three men that were held responsible. So we're going to focus on those three men. We have 21-year-old Dale Shelby Pierre, 19-year-old Keith Roberts, and 19-year-old William Andrews. Before we get deeper into the story, I want to tell you that all three of these men were airmen from Hill Air Force Base. Oh, I do want to make another point that while doing the research on this case, I was able to find that Del Shelby Pierre had changed his name throughout his life over 20 different times. Wow. So there are multiple ways that his name appears in all of these different reports. I feel like if you change your name 20 different times in your life, you probably have something you're hiding. Well, no, I'm sure that he, well, from what I'm assuming is he's one of the individuals that was held responsible, right, out of the three. And I mean, even though... A lot of people may not know where Ogden is. Ogden has some pretty international ties, especially when it comes to crime. So I'm sure that all of this stuff followed him and people were finding him and the victims of these families were finding him, which good for you. Dale joined the Air Force in 1973 and was assigned to Hill Air Force Base as a mechanic for helicopters, but he wasn't on the base long before he was suspected of murdering another airman on base named Edward Jefferson. Edward and Dale knew each other and were considered to be friends. One day, Edward gets murdered with a knife that had been shoved so far into his face that only the blade handle was showing. That's a horrific way to die. The police believed that it was Dale, but they could never put together enough evidence to prove that he did it, and therefore he was never charged with anything. William Andrews was born in Virginia, and he had a normal life. He joined the Air Force and ended up being assigned to Hill Air Force Base and was also assigned to be a mechanic on helicopters. There is hardly any information on Keith Roberts, but he was also assigned to Hill Air Force Base and met the other two men by having the same assignment of being a mechanic on the helicopters. I think there's less information to be found about Keith Roberts because compared to the other two men, he plays a much smaller role in this crime. As far as the three other men that had arrived in the car that night, police believe that they were also in the Air Force and from Hill Air Force Base, but those men have never been identified. We don't know who they were, and the police don't know who they were, or... No, they never have been identified, even still to this day. So there were six men total, and only three men were ever held responsible, so who knows who the other three guys are. They could still all be out there for all we know. Okay. So let's go back to the closing night of April 22nd, 1974, now that you've got some back information on the men involved. William and Dale enter the hi-fi shop with guns, and they confront Michelle and Stanley. They quickly take both of these employees hostage, walk them down to the basement, and tie them up. Keith Roberts, during this time, is outside of the store, basically watching guard. The police believe that at this point, since the employees were tied up downstairs, this is where the other three men come into play. They exit the car from outside, enter the store, and begin to rob the store since they basically have free reign to everything. They steal a bunch of stereo equipment and load it into the vehicle out front. At this point, 16-year-old Courtney Nesbitt enters the store. 
He knew Stanley Walker and was coming to stop by the store to chat with Stanley and thank him for an errand he had helped Courtney do earlier in the week. Unfortunately, Courtney would be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Upon entering the store, Courtney was quickly taken hostage by William and Dale. They tied him up and took him down to the basement with Stanley and Michelle. How sad. Because William and Dale and the other men that were in the process of robbing the store had spent so much time inside the shop, customers, of course, began coming in. The store wasn't locked up and it wasn't closed, so of course people are going to stop by. What a bunch of idiots. You would think that you would rush through that if you were committing uh, a crime? Why wouldn't you just close the doors and lock and it? And lock it and, and make the it... Sign. Yeah, know. make it look like you were closed. Oh, people are not very intelligent. Well, I mean, it is Ogden. No offense, people. <laughs> Stanley's dad, 43-year-old Oren Walker, got worried that his son hadn't come home from work yet, and he went to look for him. When Oren walked into the store to make sure his son was okay, he was also immediately taken hostage. He was tied up and taken to the basement as well. So now we have four hostages tied up in the basement. Oh, no. Now... <laughs> Courtney's mother begins to worry about him not arriving back from home after going to the shop to talk with his friend. Courtney's mother, 53-year-old Carol Nesbitt, also walks into the store to look for her son. She walked in, and she was taken hostage, tied up, and the two men placed her down in the basement next to her son. Now we have five total victims in the basement, tied up and held hostage. Escalated so quickly. We got there quick today. Thanks, Stanley. (laughs) I believe this went from a simple robbery to a major problem. I think the men believed that they only had the two people working in the store. They planned to tie those two people up, rob the store, and it'd be something simple. Now, as we just said, this has clearly escalated because the men were taking so long to continue to rob the store. We've had multiple people arrive. And the two men have now found themselves in quite a situation. I'd say so. (laughs) But we're going to learn that these guys had more than robbery on their mind. They were thinking about murder from the very start before they even entered the store. Going into this robbery, the men had planned to use Drano. As in the drain cleaner? As in the drain cleaner. So one by one, the men made the hostages drink Drano. All the hostages had to do this except for Michelle Ansley. Reports showed that as soon as each victim drank the Drano, it instantly started to cause blisters on their mouth and it began to peel away the flesh on the inside of their mouths and began to damage everything it came into contact with. After the four victims were forced to drink Drano, the two men placed duct tape over each of their mouths to keep the Drano inside. The men wanted to ensure that they could not spit it out. The blisters around their mouths had formed so quickly that the duct tape wasn't sticking. If you think about how duct tape can stick to everything, imagine how bad it must have been that those blisters were so bad the tape wasn't sticking. Oh my god. <laughs> there was like a long delayed pause there, but I'm your just, face. I'm just in shock. I'm trying to pick my jaw up off the floor. <laughs> wow. Yeah, horrible, right? And what kind of people, I don't know, I just can't imagine going into something being like, I'm going to make another human being drink Drano. Like, that's a good idea. I just think you have to be a certain type of human being to want to cause that much suffering to just innocent people innocent people all because you wanted to rob the store for stereo I mean, equipment just rob the store and go and go exactly leave them in the basement tied up and yeah. leave Oren walker 
Stanley's father, was the last person to receive the Drano. He had watched everyone else have to go through this, so when it was his turn, he let the Drano dribble out of his mouth slowly, and he moved around acting like he was in pain, just like he saw everyone else do, but he was able to not ingest all of it since most of it was dribbling out of his mouth. Smart guy. William and Dale were very surprised that after watching all of them ingest Drano, it didn't kill anyone right away. Well, yeah. Can you imagine the look on their face? They're just sitting there waiting for these people to, I don't know, fall over and die, and they don't. And we're just a bunch of idiots. (laughs) Dale was upset that these people didn't die. He began to shoot them in the back of the head. He first shot Courtney, then he shot his mother, Carol. He next shot Stanley Walker, and then finished by shooting his father, Oren. Now we have Michelle that is still down here, tied up. She wasn't forced to drink the Drano, and she hasn't been shot, but she's had to watch all of this take place in front of her. It's very interesting. That we left the girl. Well, one, yes. She's terrified, and she's begging for her life. This was intentional because Dale took Michelle into a corner of the basement, made her strip naked, and he raped her multiple times as William Andrews watched. When he was finished raping her, he took her to the back where the other victims were laying and shot her in the back of the head as well. Dale looked at all of the victims and noticed that Warren Walker was still alive. Can you believe that? He's been shot in the back of the head, and and he is still alive. So Dale takes a ballpoint pen and shoves it into his ear and repeatedly begins to stomp the pen into his ear until it comes out the other side of Oren's throat. Can you imagine that? No. Oren has ingested some Drano, as we talked about earlier, not a lot, but still some, has been shot in the back of the head, has attempted to be strangled with a wire unsuccessfully, and now he's having a ballpoint pen shoved into his ear canal until it's coming out the other side of his throat, and he's still alive for all of this. And this is the, the Dale guy is the one that's changed his name over 20 times. Yes. Well, now I understand why. Yes. Good. Get it, I just, I can't imagine being alive and suffering through all of these things and then to have him repeatedly stomp a pen through his ear canal. It's just, it's amazing to me that he was still alive because all of this was extremely brutal. I just don't understand what kind of human being could cause this type of suffering to so many people for for what? Right, people you didn't even know. Well, clearly he, his intention wasn't even to get any of the stolen merchandise. I don't think that's what it was for him. Obviously, this was what he wanted. Well, and I mean, showing up to this crime scene with a bottle of Drano, clearly you had horrible intent from the beginning, but this escalated quickly to shoot everybody execution style in the back of their head. That's horrible. I wonder if he ever got a psych profile when he was going into the Air Force. I'm pretty sure they have to do them. That's what you're here for, to break it down during the case. I I don't know. I don't know about the Air Force. (laughs) After the men had caused all of this destruction, they went back upstairs to finish taking what they wanted from the store, loaded the rest of the stereo equipment into the car out front that was driven by Keith Roberts and they left. Five victims left in the basement and the men left. Mm -hmm. So did they leave the dad still alive? They did. Did they know he was alive? I don't believe so. I think once they saw the pen come out the other side of his face, they assumed he was dead. The men weren't going to be found for several hours. Stanley's mother began to get worried that now both her son and her husband hadn't returned home from the hi-fi shop. So she heads down to the store to look for them. I can't imagine her walking into that scene, but upon her arriving, she calls the police. Michelle 
Michelle Ansley and Stanley Walker were dead, Oren Walker was still alive. The Drano caused major damage to his organs, the gunshot in the head, and the pen that was jammed through his ear canal, but the doctors were able to save his life. Wow. Courtney and Carol Nesbitt were rushed to St. Benedict's Hospital. Dale and William had failed to realize that they were also alive along with Oren. Not long after they got to the hospital, Carol stopped breathing when she arrived and she later died. X-rays showed that the bullet went through Carol's skull and actually split into two different pieces. Wow. Part of the bullet was lodged, but the other part kept moving and it moved into her brainstem. Courtney wasn't much better off. He couldn't breathe when he arrived at the hospital. He was rushed into surgery. It took many operations to save him, but in total, Courtney had spent 266 days in the hospital and he did survive, but he was never going to be the same. He lived through horrific experiences and mentally and physically, he of course would never be the same. How terrible. It's crazy to me that all three of them were alive and they only realized that Oren was alive. So let's go back to finding the men. William, Dale, and Keith. It did not take police long. Someone from Hill Air Force Base had contacted police and let them know that a few months earlier, William Andrews had told this man about robbing the hi-fi shop and he told him that he would kill anyone he saw inside the store. Police then got a call from some teenagers to say that they were going through dumpsters to collect some soda bottles to recycle and inside one of the dumpsters they found purses, driver's license, and credit cards, all of which belonged to the victims. The police go to the dumpster, and by the time they get there, there's a bunch of people surrounding the dumpster. I'm surprised that they put their credit cards in the dumpster. I was surprised that they didn't take them either, or the purses. Why wouldn't you just bury this kind of stuff? They're not very smart. (laughs) They're not very smart. It's mostly people surrounding the dumpster that are from Hill Air Force Base, but also in the crowd is Dale and William. Isn't that um? Isn't that a thing, right? They always go back to, like, the scene of the crime or the funeral or something. Yes. They were watching while the police pulled the items that they had dumped out of the dumpster. They were waiting for the reaction, which we talk about in cases all the time. There are some people that commit crimes, and then there are some people who are interested in watching other people's reactions so that they get the attention. The officer that was on scene would later state that he believed the people that had committed the murders were in the crowd. So he made a big scene and put on a big show while he was pulling the items out of the dumpster. And while he was doing so, he watched the reactions of everyone in the crowd to see how they responded. Smart. Sure enough, he noticed that two people were acting strange. They were pacing back and forth, talking loudly, and really standing out from everyone else. The quick-thinking police officer later identified the man as Dale and William. So this case actually gets used in the police trainings that they do because of how the officer reacted to thinking that someone was in the crowd watching. They now use this case as as an example still to this day, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that is really cool. The police were able to detain the men, get a search warrant to search their barracks on base, And inside, they found a flyer for the hi-fi shop, which doesn't look great, but it's not a bombshell evidence, and it's really nothing to prove anything. The bombshell is that they also found a rental agreement for a storage unit in Dale's name. The storage unit had been rented on the same day as the murders that took place. Your face, your reaction is my favorite, really. (laughs) You guys are morons. (laughs) If, If you thought the process through, I mean, you obviously, Dale, thought the process process through because you thought long enough about the Drano, why wouldn't you purchase the storage unit like 
three months in advance and then just show yourself going to it every now and then like a normal human being. <laughs> I'm so confused. Oh my God, people are dumb. Every time we do a case like this, Why you always talk about how stupid so they are. Stupid. So they found this rental agreement, right? Oh. Then they get a search warrant for the storage unit and they searched the unit and they found a bunch of stereo equipment. No, they did? <laughs> Stupid. They were able to match the serial numbers off the equipment to what had been stolen from the store. Everything in there was said to be worth $24,000, and in today's money, all of those stolen items would be worth around $98,000. I'm just confused. If you were going to steal them for the purpose of selling them, why wouldn't you already have buyers lined up, <laughs> right? Why? <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> We clearly are morons. Inside the storage unit, they also found the bottle of Drano that was used in the murders. You gotta be joking me. <laughs> this no. is a joke, right? I'm Seriously, this is a joke. I'm dead serious. Oh my god. I'm not sure why they decided to take the leftover Drano with them, but they did. And that was the evidence that the police used to arrest the men. And it was, there was barely any left, but there was still some Drano in there and they put it in the storage unit. I'm just shocked. At the stupidity? Yeah, Gail, no wonder you've had to change your name 20 times. You probably couldn't do it right the first 19 times, <laughs> you moron. Oh my god. They were charged with first-degree murder and robbery. Good. The state of Utah decided to try the men together. Their trial took place in October of 1974. During the trial, it came out that the defendants had watched a movie a few days earlier before the murders took place, where the victim in the movie was forced to drink Drano, and they believe this is where the idea came from. I mean, why wouldn't you use a movie idea, I guess? I, I shouldn't say that I'm surprised, because that sounds like an <laughs> idiot thing that would happen. They also called a lot of witnesses to the stand, many people from the base as well, including the man that had called police to let them know that Andrew Williams had talked about robbing the hi-fi shop a few months prior to it happening. They also called to the stand the owner of another stereo shop in Leighton, Utah, and that man was able to identify the men as the men that had been a part of a group of six African-American men that came into his store earlier that day on April 22nd, and he had eventually asked them to leave his store because they were acting strange. Oh, so they went there because it's close. So the Hillfield Air Force Base and Layton are right in the same vicinity, just depending on where it's at. It could be anywhere from two to 10 minutes. So I wonder if they went there to case the place with the intention of actually murdering and killing this shop and then for whatever reason couldn't and then looked at another shop. Right. And then were asked to leave. And then so clearly they just had it in their mind that day. They were going to rob a stereo equipment store and that's what they were getting. They had to fill that storage unit they bought. Oren Walker was able to testify. Oh, wow. He was able to identify both men as the robbers and he was able to identify that these were the men that shot everyone that night. He told the court that he was able to survive by playing dead. He also told the court that at one point, Dale kneeled down next to Oren and felt for his pulse. At this time, that is when Dale realized that Oren was still alive. Once he realized Oren had a pulse, 
This is when Dale stomped the pen into his ear. I think having Oren as the witness was really their smoking gun. I don't think you can come back from hearing a survivor's story that saw everything that took place that night. I don't think you could come back from hearing, I don't think the jury, nobody could come back from hearing his story and everything that he had to endure. Like, I, I can't even imagine. No. I can't imagine being alive for any of these things happening. Right. But how cool of him to go and testify because he could have been like, no thanks, I don't want to. Oh, I'm sure. No, I bet he wouldn't. Have. I mean, it was his wife and his son. So of course. It wasn't his wife. It was Courtney's mother, oh, remember? Yeah, that's right. So it was just his son, Stanley Walker. Courtney Nesbitt, who we discussed earlier that survived as well, was unable to testify. He was still in the hospital at the time the trial took place, but because of all of the injuries he had sustained, he wouldn't have been able to testify at all. So I did read that he actually has basically lost all of his memory, which might be beneficial to not have to remember those things, but it's horrible that he lived, unfortunately. It's horrible that he was so young and his life was essentially limited. Right. The trial lasted a month. Oh, that was quick. The jurors took 10 hours to deliberate. They convicted both men of murder and they were sentenced to die. Oh. The men had two choices. They could decide to be shot by the firing squad. Or they could decide to be hung. The state of Utah had a law at the time that did give them the choice of how they wanted to be killed. I did not know these were choices. They were. Do we still believe in the death penalty in the state of Utah? No. I don't think so, right? No. Yeah. I think there's a lot of states that do not. Yes. I'm surprised that we did. And the firing squad or hung, that's so archaic. Yes. Yes, it is. Dale and William were both put to death. This is what got me. By lethal injection. Well, that's... So I'm not sure why we switched. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't make a decision. Oh, this was... It was later on in the 80s, right? Yeah. I think that's when the lethal injection was, like, becoming a big deal. And it was more humane. Than the other two options. Yes, because, (laughs) you know, they deserve a humane death. Dale died by lethal injection on August 28, 1987, and Andrew Williams died by lethal injection five years later in 1992. Keith Roberts, remember the guy that stayed out front to basically watch guard and be the getaway driver? He was sentenced to five years to life, quite the difference from what the other men were charged with, but again, he wasn't inside and he was not as heavily involved as the other two. He served 13 years in prison and is still alive to this day. He's living his life in his out on parole. It's been reported that he is living in Chandler, Arizona and working at an electronic store in Chandler. <laughs> I'm waiting for your second opportunity, Keith. There was really no other information on him, so I'm assuming he went off to live his life and obviously wanted to stay out of any kind of attention, which makes sense. Yep. That's the case of the Hi-Fi Shop murders. What did you think? That was a little bit more surprising than I was anticipating. It took a quick turn, and I feel like we got there fast. Was, All yeah. of a sudden, we've got victim after victim in the basement tied up, and then what a situation that turned into. How terrible is it to think that... Now I understand what you meant by those people having survival guilt. <laughs> I <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm sure that they were happy it wasn't them, but I, I think you would feel guilty for the rest of your life knowing oh, for that sure. that could have been you. For and sure. it was somebody else. 
it's it's weird. Like I said earlier, all the little decisions that we all make every single day have consequences that people are totally unaware of. But it is sad to think that the building is still there. The mm-hmm. basement still exists. But I mean, anyone who goes through Ogden is very aware of that story. And it's one of Ogden's most known cases that we have. I guess I shouldn't be surprised at the horrific violence of the story uh, because it's, it is Ogden. And I know a lot of people, especially in Utah, are like, oh, Ogden, it's not that big of a deal. Yes, it is. It actually is a very dangerous area. So, right. yeah. Right. Are you ready for some tea? Um, I could use a laugh after that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Other, is it going to be more dumb than renting a storage unit and putting Drano in oh, it? Oh, I think so. It basically walks that line. Okay. Are right. you ready? Yes. Robbie Rose lost his first place medal and was charged with a felony after it was discovered that he had cheated in a Texas fishing tournament by stuffing a one pound weight down the throat of a bass he had caught. Officials became suspicious when they placed Rose's fish in a tank and it sank to the bottom. He put his metal inside the fish. What on earth? <laughs> he wanted to win. Oh, I, can't, I can't even... I... I have a migraine from all this stupidity. You're welcome. I can't believe that. Oh, man. All right. Well, that didn't make me laugh. Oh, well, it made me laugh. Well, that's That's really why we're here. (laughs) For you to laugh at your own jokes. Oh, I mean stories. I'm sorry. It's okay. I laugh at my own jokes. So it's fine. Speaking of that, are you ready for my joke? I'm ready. Hopefully it's funnier than your story. I hope so. Usually they are. What is the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? Oh, I don't know. What? Well, other than, you know, like, biology. (laughs) I believe the main difference is that one you will see later and the other you will see in a while. But, you know, I could be wrong. I'm not a zoologist. (laughs) I like that one. Before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, It is a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusive only to our Patreon listeners. So head on over to our page at patreon.com slash tea on crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with bonus content. And then as always, everybody, we really appreciate your support. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, Please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast, Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and TikTok at Tea on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all things true crime. Bye!